0: Hello, and welcome to At The Flicks. Now, we recently released what's proven to be a very popular show about films and TV series you should watch during lockdown. Well, today, your At The Flicks team, working remotely, social distancing and all that, we're here talking with filmmaker Sam Pope about his recommendations for documentary films you should really see, particularly during lockdown. Hi, Sam. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, guys. It's nice to be back. It's nice to have a chat with you again. It feels like it's been yeah, a very long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what's this now? We're, we're into about week eight or nine yeah, or something. But, yeah, God, it must be. It must be. Oh, interesting.
1: God, yeah, no, yeah.
0: Makes... Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about your documentary choices, and I'll throw in a couple as we go. Yeah, yeah. But I'd say you're in a very unique position at the moment because you've been making a documentary film. And now you find yourself in lockdown. So without saying too much about the project, what stage are you at? And what challenges is lockdown giving you?
1: We're still at a pretty early stage. It was quite strange because we we finally finished filming around about mid-March. And we had one other interview that we wanted to do that fell through in London. But... Everything we were seeing on the news, me and my editor and and River, we just thought, I don't think it's going to happen. And it it just, the lockdown or a lockdown of some kind just looked more and more and more inevitable. So the interview fell through was the shame. So we thought, okay, well, it's lockdown. We've got half a hard drive's worth of material, so about a terabyte's worth of footage. Let's just start editing. Why not? So we kind of used it as an opportunity, really. The thing that's obviously been slightly frustrating and slightly tricky so me and Tom, he's in Gloucester and obviously I'm in, I'm in Cheltenham. So I've been trying to sort of ping pong back and forth and have discussions about the edit. But obviously we haven't been in the same room. I, I don't usually work like this. I'm usually, I'm not usually breathing down the editor's neck, but <laughs> I'm, I'm usually in the same room. It's been quite strange to do it at distance. Well, obviously, like you said, we're at an early stage where we're basically just doing a blind assembly. We're trying to find out what the story actually is. We've done the fun and easy bit, which is obviously running around with a camera and filming everything and doing all the interviews. And the really difficult hard work is now the edit. We've actually got to try and find out what the story actually is. Because we started filming June, July last year. I was filming a lot of it entirely by myself most of the time. I had Rivers help now and again operating another camera. And I had a, another friend of mine who's a really amazing cinematographer help me on a few occasions, but I've pretty much just been going solo since June last year. Kind of a relief to hand over the hard drive to Tom and just say, right, I've done my part. I'm passing the bat on.
0: So has this impacted your schedules or you're still pretty much where you expect to
1: be? Well, the, the thing is with me and Tom is, well, I'm I'm still working. So I, I haven't been furloughed. So, So for me, it's, well, it's not business as usual, but obviously we're we're head to foot in PPE when it's appropriate or not. The college I work for, a lot of the students have been sent home, kind of down to a very small handful of students. So I'm still going in, I'm still doing my normal shift pattern, I'm still doing pretty much what we're doing. We're just trying to get accreditation, all the all the kind of units done and either way, but obviously all the tutors are at home as well so that's been quite that's been quite tricky and then obviously tom he's a lecturer as well in gloucester so he's he's still working full time as well so what we've been doing is we've been using the easter holidays and the half term to kind of catch up with ourselves a little bit and carry on with it so obviously we have been working at full steam which is kind of what we both wanted because he's trying to work out how the hell he's going to be teaching his drama students that's been a little bit of a distraction stressful one but Yeah, you just knuckle down, you get through it, really. It's just been a really strange, surreal couple of seven weeks. It really has. I guess the the impetus for me doing the documentary, I suppose if if, if I'm honest, it was by accident. I mean, I was pretty, I'd say it as an understatement, I was pretty angry over the last couple of years. And I think it, it stems back quite a long way because when I was at university, the financial crash had just begun. I was in my first year of university in Liverpool. I was doing an illustration animation degree in Liverpool when, when Northern rock collapsed. And, and obviously back then when the financial crash first happened, it impacted me when, even when I was at university about a decade ago, because the university I was at, I went to film school in Manchester and, and, the, the University, for some stupid reason, had invested all of their money in the Icelandic banks. The Icelandic banks folded obviously, and they didn 't get a penny back because Iceland decided they weren 't going to bail any of them out and Gordon Brown decided that Iceland, therefore, was some pariah state on the edge of europe and and should be um, ostracized in that in that regard. They did attempt to put a few of those bankers in prison and and so they should for the, the level of irresponsibility that they did but the, the impact that it started to have at, at the university I was at was the chancellor at the time, who'd come from a university in Wolverhampton that had gone bankrupt. He'd moved to the university in Manchester that I was at, and obviously what I was viewing as a student at the university was the fact that all of the cleaning staff and there was a massive restructuring because obviously the university lost millions. They were talking about firing staff, about shifting all kinds of money around. So this this was the first time that I saw firsthand. The effects of it. Obviously, the coalition government were talking about slashing, you know, making tuition fees higher. They were going to get rid of EMA. They were going to get rid of all of the, the special educational needs benefits that, uh, mm. that I, I benefit from as a dyslexic student. They were going to scrap all of it. And it, it just seemed really, really depressing. And I thought, well, what can I do? I'm a film student. I'm on campus watching all of these members of staff that look after the university I work at. I thought, I'll go grab a camera. We'd done a documentary film unit at the time, and I thought, "Well, screw it! I'll get a camera, I'll film this, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to people, I'll interview them." So, I made a film about it. It was the first time that I'd ever made a documentary, and it it, it, it seemed important and it seemed worth recording it because, obviously, when I was walking around Liverpool, there was a queue a mile long outside all the northern rocks. And there was obviously talk of austerity and they were saying, well, we're going to have to tighten our belts. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, right, okay. You're you're telling us to tighten our belts, but it doesn't look like you're doing it. No. So obviously as a, as a film student, you think, well, what can I do? I, I, I must try and capture some of this and get these stories told. So I did. I, I, I filmed it, turned it into a little doc uh, and submitted it. And obviously, the thing that made me laugh the most was the reaction from the tutors at the time, because I was reliably told in The Crit um, when I submitted the film that we, we don't really go in for films like this. Uh. And, I, and I went, oh, really? Well, it's it's a documentary, isn't it? And, and that was the thing that really kind of struck me. I, I thought, hmm, OK, so what is it about it that you don't like? we don't really make films like this we we make art films we're not into all this this journalism this the kind of stuff that you see on channel four news we 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 don't go for that we're not we're not on this film course we're not we're not really executive journalists you know we're not we're not doing that kind of thing we don't we don't go in for that style and i was like oh okay
0: colored your choices on the documentary films we're going to be
1: talking about. oh completely completely because at the time I, I was being told by my lecturers something that was running completely counter to the filmmakers that I was studying. So, for instance, er- Errol Morris. I, I, I hold my hands up and I say Errol Morris is is, is the reason that I, I bothered to pick up a, a camera and, and, and bothered to make a doc. So
0: let's just introduce that for a moment, then, because that's our first choice on the list. The thin yeah. blue line. 1988, Errol Morris. It's fair to say. The Thin Blue Line changed the way documentaries were made. It reenacted scenes. You know, prior to that, we had documentary shows in the UK like Panorama, World in yeah. Action. Yeah. What Errol Morris did, and because Morris started out as a private detective, came into film, and he reenacted a case of a police officer's murder in Dallas yeah. where, you know, a drifter being accused of this crime and then Morris felt quite incensed about it, as you're saying there, you know, quite incensed about it, and caused him to make this documentary. I don't know if you want to pick it up from there and and the reason why it means so much to you, Sam.
1: Well, it, it meant it meant a hell of a lot because it, it was kind of, it was a source of comfort in a way, because I, I, I got obsessed with Errol Morris because the, the irony was the the tutor that was lecturing me on the fact that I shouldn't have bothered to make a documentary about, the plight of the cleaners and the workers at the university. And obviously, the the trade union they were part of were all striking and, uh, and obviously supporting them through all this. And a lot of the politics students, <laughs> loads of the art students, we all came out in solidarity and stood with them saying, okay, if there's a financial problem at the university, and you're thinking about cutting the jobs of the lowest paid workers at your uni, that doesn't make sense. Because how much money does the chancellor actually get paid? How much do all the senior management members of staff actually get paid? Why do you always cut from the bottom? And why do you cut the lowest paid workers first? So that to me seemed, seemed a relevant thing to capture. And uh, what Errol was saying really was, he said, when I was making a film or trying to make my first films, I was always told very confidently by the people I was working with, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. This isn't how you make a documentary. If you and, and
0: that was true at that point, nobody yeah. ever made a documentary like A Thin Blue Line*.
1: Well, it was it was it was such a different, shocking style. And uh, the irony is that the film came out the year I was born in eighty eight. So obviously, I, I didn't see it when it first came out. So I, I came I came to it as a piece of film history. So I, I looked through the whole of his back catalogue. So the first. The first couple of films that he made was Gates of Heaven, which was a documentary about a um, pet cemetery. And it was his first ever film. There's the story of obviously he fired his first cameraman because the cameraman was arguing with him, saying, no, you, you don't film documentaries like this. It's handheld. You huh. you don't need lights. And Errol was like, well, I I, I don't want to film it that way. What, what has style got to do with truth? And that's the thing that really stood with me, is I thought, well, God, yeah, that's true. What has style got to do with truth? What exactly has it to do with delivering the truth? It's like, well, okay then. So in a sense, Errol was saying to me, you've got permission to make a story, a truthful story about the real world, but you don't need to actually obey any of these particular rules that are put down. You you don't have to have a shaky camera you know, you don't have to use available light. You don't have to have all these particular uh, cliches and you don't have to cut it in this particular way. You can you can do whatever the bloody hell you want.
0: And he had reenaction in it, which yes. is common practice today. And I'd run away from
2: home a couple times, well, once or twice, I don't know. And uh, this all started, David's running away from home. I took a pistol from my my dad's and a shotgun. Took a neighbor's car. I think I'd broken in their house or something and got the keys to it. I forget exactly what it was. Ended up coming to Dallas. I'm driving down some street somewhere in Dallas. I just turned 16. There was a guy where I think he ran out of gas. I took him and get some gas. This was
0: Randall Adams. By the way, just before we go on there, Graham, have you seen this film? No.
1: It's 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 fantastic, and it's so worth a watch because what you'll see is once you see the thin blue line, every other documentary you ever see. In a certain style, in a certain way, has a complete nod to this film, and it's it's beautiful. It's so beautifully edited. It's so beautifully written. The stylization of it. It's just it's such a fantastic work, and it doesn't behave, or it didn't behave like any other doc, really, and it really stood out. And it stood out at the time when I saw it, when you know, when I was nineteen. It, it, it completely changed my my thought on how a documentary could be. And you'll see loads of really great documentaries that come out now, and they all have a nod to Errol and his style. So, okay, to pick up a couple of points about why it's it's different, I suppose, is it's the interview technique. Now, this this is something that Errol developed over quite a long period of time. Now, obviously, you, you said that he was a prided detective. Now, one of the things that was also quite enlightening and also depressing about reading about Errol is – he was a very kind of very stubborn, bloody-minded filmmaker, and I and I love that. I, I like him already. Yeah, he was—he's fantastic, <laughs> and he's so stubborn and just dogmatic. It's, it's fantastic, and you know, fair enough. He's grumpy, so what? His films are brilliant, so you can let him off for being a little bit grumpy. Whenever anyone interviewed him, if I ever read any of his interviews, he'd always say. I could never make a successful career out of being a documentarian. I was like, "Oh shit, great, okay." Well, thanks for telling me that, Errol. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, your
2: career. He's yeah, telling you yeah, exactly.
1: It. So I thought, well, that's just great, isn't it? So it just goes to show that I, I sort of got from that that to to get things done, you sometimes need to go off and 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 work for a couple of couple of months to get the money together to finish the film if if no one's interested in funding you. So Errol was working as a, a private detective down in he was in New York, but he he got wind of a of a really interesting guy called Doctor Death. Yeah, um, clues in the name. Yeah, well he he got the nickname because he was basically the the doctor, the psychologist that the authorities went to in Texas if they wanted to assess whether someone was mentally sound, whether they should be put on death row, whether they should be sentenced to death. So. He got the nickname because, obviously, he was the one who assessed these people. Errol was fascinated by this this guy and did an interview with him. And then, obviously, from that, Errol decided to go off and do some interviews with a few of the inmates. This is when he stumbled across Randall Adams. So Randall Abbins at the time was on death row for the crime of shooting this Dallas police officer. But obviously when Errol sat down and started talking to him, obviously the first thing the guy said was, I'm innocent. I, I didn't, I didn't shoot him, but I, I know who did. And obviously Errol went, hmm, okay, well, you're not the first person who's told me they're innocent. So Errol decided to kind of do a little bit more digging. And he ended up by actually speaking to David Harris, who was a... 16-year-old runaway at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, and a, and a drifter. So he tracked him down and did an interview with him. And what suddenly started to stand out for Errol was the inconsistencies with the court case and, and what this young boy was telling him. And he suddenly started to, to realise that there was a story here and there was a massive, huge miscarriage of justice here where actually Randall Adams probably didn't actually do it.
0: And and the other side of the story, which he then uncovers, is the police were under extreme pressure to get this thing finished quickly. Well, yeah,
1: of course, because you've got a police officer that's been shot. They want justice. And the distinct impression you get from watching the film is that they were desperately, desperately trying to to get this guy convicted. And they did. I mean, obviously, I don't want to give the end of the film away because it's such a wonderful film. And I... The, the thing I always hate doing is doing a spoiler. You want people to experience the dot for themselves and let it unfold. And it goes at a, a really beautiful, slow, steady pace. And it's got this fantastic soundtrack by Philip Glass that um, accompanies yeah. the whole film. Wonderful soundtrack. The thing that, that stands out for me is Errol Morris's interview style. This is obviously something he developed from being a, a private eye, a private detective. Because when you watch any of Errol Morris's films, if you watch his really early films, so uh, Verna um, uh, Verna Florida, which was uh, about this this uh, this small little town in Florida where loads of all the inhabitants were trying to do, um, they were basically committing insurance fraud by trying to get the money from you know having accidents. So they were they were shooting their legs off and. Uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff as you, where, as you do trying to get the insurance money so Errol went down to Verna basically on the on the pretext of uh, interviewing these people but found out that they were either gonna sue him or shoot him so he decided to to drop that so instead he he turns the camera on the inhabitants of Verna Florida and it it's a fantastic hilarious look at uh this little town in florida and the interviews are just fantastic the people he meets are just they're so sweet and they're so kind of they're so trusting and they kind of they just yeah they just have a really nice open chat with errol and they just talk about their lives and it's it's not you know a, an express train of a f- of a film it's a really slow-paced little doc and it's it's examining that that part of america that the the time we never really got to see very often but He's not—he's not laughing at them in a sense. He's just kind of—he's just curious about their worldview and how they've come to it. It's also alongside uh, Gates of Heaven, which is this first doc, which is about a pet—a pet cemetery, which is just yeah a charming little film, and it's just—it's fantastic.
0: But just to sum up on Thin Blue Line, and uh, I say we've—we've we've made this point a couple of times during this discussion. It is revolutionary in the way it approached it in the book. 50 documentaries to see before you die yeah it's number two yeah oh, it wow. was put into the library of congress yes uh, yeah. for its uh, significance in 2001 it is done in piece of work yeah we don't want to give the end away but the end is shocking
1: yeah yeah and it's 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 so worth it and it was the first time that anyone had really bothered like you said to use reenactments in a in a doc yeah. and it's it's used in such a wonderful way and in a sense what errol's doing is he's kind of like any good detective he's replaying all the information just the facts he's replaying all the information he's relooking at it he actually goes back and the the research and the amount of work that he put in to to essentially reopening the case reexamining all the information interviewing everyone he lays it out for you and anyone viewing the film, by the end of it, you, you come to one conclusion. And the thing that really stuck out for me, which, which is what everyone will notice when they see the film, you don't have any names that appear on the bottom of the screen. Now, I know that seems like a really s- small thing, but to, to a film student like me, it was, it was interesting because he interviewed them in such a fantastic way. He set up the questions and he, he talked to them in such a fantastic way that you never hear Errol at any point during the film, ask a single question. He sort of subtracted himself from the process. So he's done such a good job at asking them questions that you don't need their name at the bottom of the screen. You know who they are. And in the course of the conversation, they explain themselves so articulately and they they talk about the subject matter so well that the next person, the next talking head that appears, you know exactly who they are. And it's, it's a wonderful little editing technique and the way that he set everything up. I just, I just thought was fantastic. Obviously steal that shamelessly. It's also the directness. Cause the other thing that really stood out for me with Errol when I first watched his stuff is the camera is static. It, it doesn't move. It's, it's not like Nick Broomfield. It's not like moving all over the place. It's, it's a static camera. It's lit. Sometimes they're in a studio and they're looking directly down the barrel of the lens, into the camera. Now, that that was something that, that really stood out stylistically, that it looked really odd, but I I, I really loved it. And it was, it was a directness that I didn't see in many other directors' work. And I, I thought, God, that's such a brilliant idea. Errol, in his, his genius, what he ended up by doing was he actually patented a machine, which I think his wife, she gave her the nickname. It was like the the interviewer tron or the ateratron or something like that where it's it's basically a bit like uh, the kind of tv cameras that newscasters use you know where you've got a oh, um, teleprompter built yeah, in yeah yeah so so basically errol isn't actually sat in front of the the person he's interviewing he's got a camera sat in front of them so the person he's interviewing is looking at a camera and they're looking at a monitor down below of uh, the image of errol sat the other side and Errol's looking at another monitor and there's another camera. So it's kind of weird. It's almost like he's interviewing them over some sort of weird proto version of Zoom or something. Very (laughs) strange, but it's such a fantastic look and it to me it stood out completely because it's it's such a fantastic direct way where the person on camera is telling you their story directly. Shall we move
0: on to a more traditional documentary? Yes, yes, yes. So I'm gonna lip on to Grey Gardens.
1: Ah, now that's that's interesting. See, that that's a doc that I haven't seen. So You'll have to sort of enthuse me I'll, about it.
0: I'll talk about it, yeah, no problem. So Great Gardens, back in 1975, the Marseille brothers pay a visit to Edith Boudavia Beale, who was near an 80 at the time, and her daughter Edie. What's interesting about these people is that they lived in this run-down mansion with cats and raccoons. They were related to the Kennedys. I think Ooh. they were related to Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Bouvier, wasn't she, before she got married? And they're sort of on the wing of the family. But they were a fascinating couple. The brothers stayed with them for a time, and they filmed them. And And this sort of shambling documentary was put together to show this rather strange mother and daughter in this mansion. And it was, it was made in the mid-'70s, and it's a reflection of a, a bygone age. It's almost one of these things that, again, we were speaking about this earlier – a bygone age that almost never existed anyway. Mm. It's absolutely incredible. It is now available on Criterion. Yes. And the yeah, Mercedes yeah. have allowed extra footage to go on there. Mm. Oddly, it was also filmed. <laughs> In two thousand
1: and nine, yeah, wasn't uh, it? Uh, it's Drew Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore was it? Or was
0: Jessica Lange, which I've seen, mm. and it's a wonderful film.
1: Okay, I'll definitely get on it. I'm the, the problem is with me when you go to film school because you you've studied for uh, how long to rip films apart and uh, take the innards out, and you know how they work a lot of the time to get infused by by things um i'm i'm exceptionally picky and a bit snobby when it comes to watching films so i i i have a massive pile of stuff on my shelf which i still haven't watched and unfortunately, praise, like that. if it praise, ain't got the vin or the Mel, you don't want to know uh, yeah well i uh, i don't know if i can't empathize with that i can't lie can, <laughs> i could happily go through my entire life without never watching another film with vin diesel in it um bless him
0: When we started, we spoke about uh, Errol Morris and his style of not being involved in the film, even to the extent of keeping his questions out. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go the complete opposite way for our next one. Another great documentary and has personal significance in this house The Leader, His Driver, and The Driver's Wife from 1991. Here we've got director Nick Broomfield, who seems to put himself into every shot, interviewing that piece of scum, Cher Blanche, leader in the Africana Party in South Africa at that time, mm. who um, I cheered the day he was murdered, by the way. Spoiler!
1: <laughs> no, it's
0: not in this film. That, that was after this film.
1: And he was a particularly uh, nasty piece of work. So the leader, uh, his driver and the driver's wife is, like you said, it's 1991. And Broomfield basically goes down to South Africa. For me, it was it was an education when I, when I first saw it. Because I, I first saw it when I was at film school and I was in my early 20s. And it was fascinating because obviously that that area of the world, I I had a lot of ignorance around what the politics was like and what it was actually like to live through apartheid. When was Mandela actually released? Because was he released?
0: Um, Early 90s.
1: Yeah. So this this was kind of just around that cusp. And essentially the the leader himself, he was basically trying to cause trouble in any way, shape, or form he could. He was the most belligerent, bloody-minded, difficult Cunt. um yeah it was a nasty piece of work and the the kind of the comedy comes of it because essentially you're you're not convinced whether nick Broomfield's actually going to get this sit down interview that he's after so what he ends up by doing himself his researcher um his cameraman barry essentially what they do is they almost they almost give up because Every time they try and go for an interview, the leader makes himself unavailable. He either leaves his office like ten minutes early and they turn up for the interview and the, the secretary at the desk said oh, i'm really sorry you just missed him he 's just gone you 're going to have to come back tomorrow." The, the interesting thing was obviously when, whenever he turns up for the interview he 's never there there 's some excuse and it's, it becomes almost kind of comical in the end where where Broomfield just goes, Do "You know what we 're this frustrated we can't get let 's just try the direct approach because the driver." Um, JP and his wife, uh, Anita, they, they live next door to the leader. So they end up by befriending JP and his wife. And the bulk of the film actually comes from this this really great relationship between JP and his wife. And essentially, at the very beginning of the dock, they're filming a rally in, in Vendorstall. And Barry, his cameraman's doing a shot of the audience and someone just gets up from the audience because they're not really too fond of the idea of being filmed and just punches the cameraman straight in the face and knocks him to the ground. <laughs> uh, yep, or, you know. oh, you,
0: Graham, you have no idea what these people are like. I, I, I spend time with them. They are scum. <laughs>
1: Right, you must have fitted right in Jeff <laughs> it was it was interesting because obviously when he's interviewing j p and his wife, the level of racism that they're talking about is quite open, and it's whenever whenever it comes to them trying to get this interview with a leader it happens eventually, but it's it's the most icy and most difficult and just like drawn out affair possible. You do feel a little bit sorry for Nick. The real heart of it is Anita, the driver's wife, and she she's obviously kind of espousing the same views as her, as her, as her husband JP, and she stands with him. But JP obviously is kind of throughout the dock. You can kind of see him becoming more and more disenfranchised with the whole thing. And what happens throughout it, which gets documented in in the in the follow up film, which is called uh, His Big White Self. This is a film that he he films several years down the line and actually catches up with everyone. So he he goes back to South Africa and catches up with JP and his wife and finds out, you know, where they are now and finds out what's happening with the leader and everything. In the interim they they do kind of a bit of a, a history lesson of kind of everything that happens with Mandela coming to power and what happened to the group, and obviously what eventually happened to uh, the leader, and obviously the the footage of him falling off his horse when he was uh, attempting to trample on protesters outside the courthouse, he does in a sense he gets his comeuppance, and and maybe rightly so. Um, no, no, it, no, no, not maybe. There's no
0: maybe about
1: it. <laughs> well, I was trying not to do a spoiler there, but yeah, he gets his comeuppance, and and essentially, it's the follow-up film is a lot more. It's it's a lot more kind of hard hitting because you you actually look at the the actual reality of what happened to loads of the leader's uh fire hands. so essentially there's there's a court case that happens where the leader for whatever reason decides in a bit of a drunken stupor that he's going to beat up his security guard and he beats up the guy up so badly that he can't use the entire left side of his body anymore there's there's a story about obviously the mistreating of uh, some of the the farm workers on his land and Nick Broomfield's approach is that he gets them to open up and tell him all this stuff, essentially because the leader thinks that Broomfield's an idiot and he's he's a bumbling twit. And it's it's kind of it's kind of a similar sort of way of going about things that Louis threw and yeah, and
0: that that's a really interesting point because I've always felt there was a strong thread between. The way Broomfield does something and makes himself a centre of a story, and the way Louis Theroux does it as well,
1: yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely there's definitely a borrowing of style there for Definer, and you, and you can see it. And it's interesting because Sasha Baron Cohen says a similar thing too, because all of the TV shows he's done over the years they're they're fantastic. And and you think, how on earth did you manage to do a sit down interview with these people? How on earth did you get these people to say this stuff to you? And Sasha Baron Cohen's obviously going well. What you've got to do is once they assume that you're an idiot, <laughs> they, they'll tell you anything and they'll divulge all of this information and they'll kind of just give themselves up to you. And it's the thing is with Broomfield is obviously what he was trying to do in the in the in the film was he was trying to sort of expose really the arguments and the ideology and the thought process behind why you'd want to continue on with apartheid, why you'd feel the need to go into a school um, and have your thugs beat up black kids as they're coming out of school. But
0: this is, and, you know, I'm, again, so my family in South Africa are all from an English side. The whole point of, of, of what's going on here and what, what he's trying to do is you show these people for what they are. When mm. the Afrikaner government took took up control, I think it was 48 or 49, mm. you know, these Essentially, farmers really yeah. had gained control of a government and didn 't have a clue what to do next. just summing up on that then Jt G- Broomfield is an interesting director. Mm. he does put himself in his films, but that is a film i mean i 'm getting angry just thinking about it again, yeah. I've seen it a couple <laughs> of times, yeah. so it's definitely a film yeah. that uh, if you haven 't seen you need to see it just to understand his style of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, completely, completely. He's he's provoking, he's causing a reaction, he's asking provocative questions, but he's he's also after some form of truth. And he's trying to like you said, he's trying to expose the views and these people for who they are. And he's he's trying he's persuading them to sort of make their case why they believe what they believe. How do a whole generation of people grow up thinking like this? And it it does end up by young children being indoctrinated and being I, I, yeah, brainwashed, I guess, into, into believing that this this,
0: in this country at the moment.
1: Yeah. And yeah, it, and it's, it's sad and depressing. And I suppose this this leads into uh, the act of killing, really, because...
0: Uh, well, we'll come back to the act of killing. I've got that one yeah. down. That's that one I, I, I've saved for for later on. Yeah. I will talk about a happy subject now. Go on. A great <laughs> hack, a 2019 film.
1: Yeah, now that is uh, an
0: interesting one have you seen that one Sam? uh
1: i have i have i I think i I saw it when it first came out because obviously it was around the time of um all the all the cambridge analytica stuff so it was graham had seen it yeah
0: yeah so uh yeah i think this is the the one where this is the only one on this list where we've all four of us seen it i think yeah it's it is a stunning piece of work
1: yeah yeah
2: All of your interactions, your credit card swipes, web searches, locations, likes, they're all collected in real time into a trillion dollar a year industry.
1: The real game changer was Cambridge Analytica. They'd worked for the Trump campaign and for the Brexit campaign. They started using information warfare.
2: Cambridge Analytica claimed to have 5,000 data points on every American voter.
1: I started tracking down all these Cambridge Analytica ex employees.
2: Someone else that you should be calling to the committee is Brittany Kaiser.
1: Brittany Kaiser, once a key player inside Cambridge Analytica, casting herself as a whistleblower.
2: The reason why Google, and Facebook are the most powerful companies in the world is because last year data surpassed oil in value. Data is the most valuable asset on earth.
1: It's probably not the best the best documentary ever made, but it's the subject matter that's important. It's important for quite a few reasons because obviously at the moment with the current landscape that we're in, with the government rolling out that NHS app, uh, which obviously they're wanting everyone to sign up to, there there is a level of scepticism and dis- distrust with. Uh, social media the companies and what they're doing with all the information what are they doing with the data sets afterwards who are they selling them on to and what the hell is happening with all my personal information essentially there, there was always this sense of slight paranoia with tech
0: i accept that but i think for me the great hack is far more important because it's looking at what's being done to us
1: uh, yeah true true uh it's it's an important film but it it it's obviously it centers on um Well, it follows Carol Cadwallader is again it, another it, one of the main
0: it. ones of the, for the UK, but you're you're thinking of Brittany Kaiser. That's it, Brittany, Brittany Kaiser,
1: that's it. Yeah, that's it. So Brittany Kaiser. You you empathize with her and
0: you understand I don't trust Brittany Kaiser at all. I no. mean you
1: you understand why she's doing it because she in in the film she's basically at the centre of all of this.
0: I can remember Kaiser and how she was starting to hand out information, and she was saying she's in threats of her life, but she wasn't yeah. giving out real information. She was giving out stuff around the fringes.
1: Yeah, of course, to of course. make herself
0: story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got people like, I think, like Carol Cadwallader, who are putting themselves on the line. Yeah. Certainly financially, you know, you've got scummers like banks after her all the time, mm. who's sitting out the current COVID thing by sitting in New Zealand yeah uh where he's nice and safe but he wants brexit for this country mm. so you you've got people like that kaiser has her own agenda
1: yeah of course of course and you you get that same impression from uh watching stuff about you know uh wikileaks and um julian assange it's, it's interesting because I rewatched We Steal Secrets, which is the story of WikiLeaks. It's interesting because Laura Potts, who made the Citizen 4 documentary about Edward Snowden, she actually made a film about uh, Julian um, Assange as well. Jason, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I have
0: no problem with Edward Snowden. I think a lot of what he's saying is
1: interesting. Yeah. It's, it's well, it's, it's, it's.
0: An opportunist and potentially a rapist.
1: Yeah. Mm. You have to really look at. Uh, why they did it what was the reason behind it and with Julian Assange it's not clear-cut and he's a pretty divisive and a bit of a controversial character a
0: horrible character I'd give him to the Americans I'd swap him well the problem that woman back would kill that kid I want her out so if they hmm. want Assange I'll swap her
1: well the only problem is with that is that sets a precedent because essentially the reason that I mean, for, uh, this is obviously my opinion. The reason that I, I hold up Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden as being as being patriots, um, in, in the but true I'm in, no the, true, in now, the true in the true sense of the word, because what they were doing, the, both of them, was putting their their lives uh, in jeopardy. Um, obviously, Edward Snowden is currently uh, living in yeah. in, in, in Chelsea, Russia. Chelsea in Chelsea
0: Manning didn't run.
1: Chelsea no. Manning
0: stood up in her country. Yeah. And went to prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She stood up. Snowden went to, to Moscow. Okay, I can. Un- again, I understand that Assange is a coward, a manipulator, and a pawn for the Russians.
1: But then, at the same time, you've got to you've got to make that argument. You go, well, what impact did WikiLeaks actually have? Was it actually probably for the greater good that we we know all of this information? That's the difficult thing about it. I mean, obviously, with Snowden, what he was, what he leaked. I think it's probably, it's far more important. Now, the arguments that was made for Snowden being detained and being incarcerated, the reason that he's, he hasn't bothered to go back to the United States is because of the particular way that the American government wants to prosecute him. Oh, yeah. And essentially, he said, well, do you know what? Listen, I'm, and he said this on loads of occasions. There's an interview recently with him where he was interviewed about, obviously... The situation with covid and his current predicament and what he thought of the nhs app and the different apps that have been used and what he was his opinions on uh cyber security and and what's happening in in china with the uh, and well and actually in fact in a lot of different countries with loads of human rights abuses that are going on um obviously an excuse that certain regimes are making because of the covid outbreak to to basically uh, take more more uh, liberties away from their citizens hungary and poland for example yeah, are already and, doing it and yeah. and obviously Duterte and bolsonaro the, the list mm. is endless and it's 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 sad it really is sad and obviously what snowden was talking about is he said listen i'm i'm willing to go back home but i know that the, the problem is that the truth and the reason that i did what i did it won't be debated or, or put in front of a jury. It no. won't be. And the American government has made a promise. They said, well, if you come back, well, we won't torture you. <laughs> so obviously Snowden's just going, well, mm, no, uh, I'm not going to go back because all that's going to happen is I'm going to be silenced and I'm going to be locked away. And essentially the American people won't get to debate in a courtroom the merits of why I did what I did. And he said, listen, if I come back and I'm actually allowed to have a fair trial and as a country, we can openly debate and discuss why did I feel the need to tell the American public and the British public and the wider world about the dangers of government secretly harvesting all this information? Why, why did I feel the need to do that? And he said, well, okay, I've divorced this information. I've redacted loads of it. I made sure in, in a stipulation to the newspapers and the other people that I, I gave the information to, I said, listen, you've got to make sure that the information I'm giving out isn't going to cause any unnecessary harm. All I want to do is I just want to reveal what they're doing. I don't want to uh, cause any damage because I know the repercussions of that. And in a sense, it was it was responsible the way he did it. But an act of public service. Now, this, this is obviously the reason now why when something like Cambridge Analytica happens, we're not surprised. We're not surprised that private companies are stealing our information to make horrendously large amounts of profit. To... I, I,
0: I slightly disagree with that uh, because the Cambridge Analytica scandal unleashed what was going on in Facebook. I think that was the big reveal.
1: Well we well the thing is organization
0: that we use to talk to friends, yeah collecting
1: information about it. Yeah, true, true, true. true. It 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 got it got the information out into the mainstream, but it's it shouldn't be too much of a massive shock because their business model and the way they operate, it's it's for free. But it's not for free because how are you monetizing it? Hmm. And it, it, it comes back to loads of things now where Everyone, obviously, growing up, I, I remember. I remember when the internet was. Excuse me, Sam.
0: Sorry. Do you watch Coronation Street?
1: No, I don't know.
0: No. Do you watch EastEnders? No, no, I don't. How many of those people use Facebook? Quite a few, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So they wouldn't know. You know. Yes, you understand this, mm. but they don't, yeah. and that's the problem.
1: Yeah. I, I I suppose it's the scale of it is is extraordinary. Obviously, when you're using something like this, yeah, people are completely unaware of all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, the workings of it, the mechanics of it. They just go, oh, it's for free. I'm going to use it. But what they don't realize is they're actually the product, their their thoughts, their feelings, their messages, the amount of times that they tap on, a, on an app, on a screen, the the places they go, the people they talk to, the things they're interested in. Everything's up for grabs. Everything can be monetized. And it's, it's depressing. I suppose, yeah, the good thing about it was the fact that it, it got properly revealed that this is going on. I just want to sum this up by saying the great
0: hack and everything around it, and certainly that film you're talking about with the Edward Snowden film, all yeah, yeah. tracking War. down.
1: Yeah, so yeah, let's have something
0: a little bit lighter. Okay. Let's talk a double bill of Werner Herzog, starting <laughs> with <laughs> The Wonderful Burden of
1: Dreams. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a great film, great film.
0: It's uh, a documentary on the chaotic production of Werner Herzog, epic film Fitzcarraldo, mm. showing how that film got made despite problems that would have floored most normal directors. Mm. He had casting problems. He lost both Jason Robarts and Mick Jagger halfway through shooting. He brought in Klaus Kinski. He gets caught up in a war between two countries. It's just horrendous. Fitzgeraldo's is an incredible film. Yeah, yeah, But this is astonishing, the yeah. making of it. Over to you, Sam.
1: That's the thing that's always fascinating. I mean, to me, because, I, because I've studied filmmaking, it, to me, a lot of the time, the making of is sometimes... More, more exciting sometimes than the actual film. That isn't to say *Fitzcarraldo* isn't a really wonderful, beautiful-looking film, uh. but you just go into the mechanics of yeah, the the, <laughs> the trials and tribulations of just trying to get the damn thing made, and and what you have to wrestle with. And it, it was extraordinary. So in the film, what happens is obviously you have this opera fanatic, and obviously midway through the film, he he decides that he needs to basically take. Opera to the masses and take it into the rainforest. And part of the film is the uh, this incredible scene where the, the boat that they're traveling on downriver. He he needs to get it over this mountain, so he decides to basically enlist the local this this local tribe to to basically with pulleys and winches and everything physically hoist this massive boat up this hill. And it is massive. It's it's, it's like huge. triple story. We've oh, seen
0: it, Greg? yeah. I've seen it. It's it's bonkers.
1: It is. It is absolutely bonkers. And I, I urge anyone to watch it because with with Werner, he's he he does documentaries. His feature films just as strange and fantastic. And with this, obviously, what you see in the dock is you actually see the fact that they did actually move the boat up mountainside. Which is just uh, just extraordinary, um, and obviously, Klaus Ginski, uh he brings him in to uh, to fill in as the, as the lead role. But obviously, he was he, he was kind of famous for being a very volatile and unpredictable character, and he was he was bloody difficult to work with, but an amazing actor. He had a certain. A certain look in his eyes and a, a delivery, which obviously Vern absolutely loved, and he cast him in uh, Akira, yeah. The Wrath of God, as well. And
0: yeah, and Nosferatu.
1: Yeah, and he's he is an extraordinary actor. But he was just on on that particular set. He was just an absolute bastard, really, and he made a lot of trouble. So much so that the actual local Amazonian tribe actually offered to uh, kill him. So they they said to they said to Vern Hookside, "Well, if you want, we can we can kill him if you want." He said, "Please, please don't kill him. I I, I need him to complete the film. <laughs> but they, they were convinced that he had he was possessed by some sort of bad spirit of some kind. It
0: probably wasn't far from the truth. I mean No, no, no. Things about his personal life have come up since his heart yeah, yeah, which yeah. are even more disturbing. People say, you know, Apocalypse Now a really troubled production.
1: Oh yeah, because uh, that that film that um, Francis Ford Coppola's wife made about it, uh, yes. Hearts of Hearts oh, of Darkness, yes. that that's an, an extraordinary film. But, and you... but this beats that. Uh, yes. Yeah, he, uh, well, yeah,
0: no, no, uh, no, 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 no. He, he didn't threaten to have Martin Sheen killed, did he?
1: No, he, he didn't. He didn't. And actually, Werner Herzog talks about that in a, in this um, in his master class. He talks about the fact that for some reason, Klaus Kinsey had one of his fits of rage, and he, I, I, <laughs> for some reason, he had a he took he either took a dislike to uh, either the cameraman or some some member of the crew decided to walk off the set and and Werner basically sort of very quietly went up to him and said if you do that i'm i'm going to kill you and <laughs> and Clive uh obviously just believed him and calmed down and came back <laughs> But yeah, well, I mean, Hearts of Darkness is well worth a watch as well because
0: you—it it, is—but I think Burdens of Dreams just goes to another level.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, well, with Hearts of Darkness, Martin Sheen has a has a heart attack on set, and nearly dies. Uh,
0: Barbie Cotel was fired. Just uh, yes,
1: um, Marlon Brando took a million pound advance uh, to I play Kurtz, to and My then Boy. and then didn't turn up. Yeah. <laughs> just funny. in I'm, fact I'm, he's he's actually not in the film at all if
0: you if the way I watch it I think he's crap. Yeah. I, I mean well the first choice for the role of Kurtz, so I said it's Steve McQueen. I yeah. McQueen would have been fantastic. He didn't yeah,
1: really. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cuz I think the the argument the argument for why Martin Sheen was good was because he, he was supposed to be kind of a bit of a blank slate, which I, I suppose, I suppose Stephen McQueen would have been as well because it was the, whole, the whole idea of it was that he wanted a silent character. He wanted someone to be almost like an observer, observing all this craziness. Um, so he, wanted, he, he didn't want a performance that was too provocative and uh, you know, too over the top. He, he wanted someone who was a bit more uh, subtle. Um, so that's that's obviously why Sheen was uh, was eventually the choice, which I, I think I think is amazing, really.
0: Real trivia question for you then: shortly cool. after filming finished and Apocalypse Now came out, Sheen and Cartel made a film together. What was it called? It's a little scene film actually, but it's a great film. Go on, go on. The Eagle's Wing. It's a western.
1: Ah, mm-hmm. I haven't seen that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. If you haven't seen it, try and track it down. It's okay,
1: brilliant. all right, okay, yeah, yeah. Right. Anyway,
0: let's stay with Werner Herzog. Go to the second film. A film I I feel. I haven't seen this one actually and I would oh, love to see it. It's, it's the Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Yeah. Let me let me just describe it for our listeners. In nineteen ninety-four, a group of scientists discovered a cave in southern France which is perfectly preserved for over twenty thousand years and contained mm. the earliest known human paintings. Knowing the cultural significance of the caves, the French government cut off all access, save for a few archaeologists. Mm. But Werner Herzog was given limited access. We go in with him and look at, you know, the birth of our history. This cave had been perfectly sealed for tens of thousands of years. It contained by far the oldest paintings ever discovered. It is as if the modern human soul had awakened here. This is one of the rare times anyone is allowed inside the cave. This may be the only and last opportunity to film inside. Will we ever be able to understand the vision of the artists across such an abyss of time?
2: We're going to listen to the cave and perhaps we can even hear our own heartbeats.
1: Sam, over to you. It's it's an extraordinary film. I actually had the pleasure of seeing it in the cinema, which was really nice, actually, because a, a lot of the a lot of his work that I saw is is obviously uh, from you know the seventies and the eighties. So it's it's really nice to kind of when a new Werner Herzog film goes out, go to see it in the cinema, and it's it's such a better experience. This this one in particular stood out because it was it was in three D when I went to see it. It was him and a very limited crew. And obviously they got permission to go in which was yeah fantastic once once in a, a lifetime opportunity to go in and, and film and document this stuff uh, for the general public do the amount of time they had in there was limited because simply going in there and breathing out and exhaling the the condensation and the mm. uh the change in atmosphere that would simply occur from them being in there breathing would actually start to decay the artwork so the age of the paintings the oldest ones at the back of the cave were around right about i think it was something like 30 32000 years old yes. so they were they were carbon dated as being the oldest documented human markings and artwork so older than any other thing on the planet which is an extraordinary extraordinary thing to consider so he went in with a really small limited crew they they pared the equipment down so it was basically just himself doing all the sound recording another guy doing some of the uh, camera work and i think they had someone else to help them kind of inch their way through the kind of the crevices to get down to the main cave and watching it in the cinema was extraordinary they get into this space and you just see these artworks lit up and obviously they're because of the shapes of the walls and everything they they sort of bend and come out of you and it's 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 bizarre. It's almost like looking at some sort of form of proto cinema, which is what Werner talks about in the film, where there's drawings that have been drawn on top of each other. So it's like um, it's like you're looking at the the stills of an animation uh, where you see all these buffalo and these bison, all these incredible ice age creatures running around. But the thing that really grabbed me about it, which which is extraordinary, and fully enough, they they make a reference to this in uh, the TV show Devs. Yeah, d- no, you beat me to it. I was just yeah. going to say it's the same cave in. Yeah, devs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the the two the two actors in Devs have sat down, and obviously the that incredible. I mean that that's one of my favourite shows at the moment. I actually adore yeah. that. Yeah. So they're sat down, and what they're doing is they're they're discussing the fact that the gaps in time between the first paintings at the very back of the cave and the other paintings. There's a gap of fifteen thousand years. Mm. Now that's extraordinary because when you actually put that into perspective, what you're saying really is that nothing really has changed in that period of human history in fifteen thousand years. Things pretty much were the same, and they lived in caves and they didn't come out. And it just it completely floors you. It completely floors you. And I, I remember it was it was It was a really, really bizarre experience. Obviously, you're sat in the dark in the cinema experiencing this. and it's that's that's the one thing. That's the beautiful thing about cinema is when you see a really good film and you get in there and you're sat in the dark and you're sat in there with complete strangers, I mean, Obviously, as a student, I used to go at really odd times in the day when, you know, it'd just be me and like five other people in the in the corner house in Manchester when it was still running on Oxford Road. You're sat in the dark and you have this collective experience where it's, you're almost like sharing a dream. The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, it, it is like that. You're sharing a collective dream. You're looking at a, a bubble of the past. And to just get your head around the, the amount of time that's elapsed is just extraordinary. But the one thing I will say is that it, it's this film is part of uh, an amazing couple of films that Werner put out um, in the last couple of years. That the one that the one film I actually saw that got me into Werner was Grizzly Man. I don't know if you have you guys seen it, I've
0: seen bits of
1: it. Yeah, seen. now that that's really worth a watch because Grizzly Man isn't it, isn't a doc in the traditional sense because it's the story of a guy that.
0: Nutter, basically.
1: Yeah, he's he's rather eccentric. Timothy Treadwell and him and his partner, they he basically just goes out into the wilds and he he tries to sort of make a relationship with the population of grizzly bears. And he's got his little DV camera with him and he's he's basically Let me filming. Stop you
0: there, Sam Graham. He tried to make a relationship with grizzly bears. Let's see if you want to guess what happened to him. It all went swimmingly, and he found that the middle bed. And the middle porridge was just right? Yeah, just right. Something like that. Mm. <laughs> Something like this. He couldn't comment on the documentary. <laughs> mm. uh, it did come out as dump at some
1: point, yes. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah. So, what essentially, What could Verna, go wrong? Yeah. Well, essentially, what could go wrong? And, obviously, what, what Werner Herzog talks about in the doc is he says that it's it's that immediate assumption that, he thinks that most westerners and most people have about nature that it's this it's this cute thing and it's he, he obviously makes a commentary on it in the doc and he says that obviously that for all of Timothy Treadwell's kind of flaws, the, the main the main thing that he the main naivety that he had was essentially that he he felt that nothing could really happen to him, that he had such a good relationship with this set of wild animals that that he he didn't he didn't feel that he was in any jeopardy. And essentially what Werner does, him and his team, is they they went through the hours and hours and months and years of all these tapes and they, they cut together out this found footage, this dock, and this amazing footage, close-up of bears where timothy Treadwell is the main character in it but obviously something pretty unfortunate happens to him and um yeah. there's uh, there's a woman who's basically the the castonian of the tapes and verna there's a there's a scene where Werner actually sits down and, and listens to to the the tape of timothy treadwell and his partner and and, and the fate that that happens to them and it's yeah it's pretty unpleasant
0: this is a discussion for another time, mm. but the Disneyfication of man's relationship to nature is an extremely dangerous thing mm. to go too far. Mm. And we'll talk another time about those true life adventures from the 50s because those people that made them never intended them to be used by Disney in the way they were. Mm. And what I will also say on the other side of the coin is, Emma from Bristol, and I hope you're listening to this, Emma, um, if that person had actually... Tracked down Emma's viewing list they would have seen that dealing with these creatures would have got them killed
1: mm, yeah yeah for definite uh, and it I mean Timothy Trevor he was so kind of enthused and he was so committed and he was so um, he had such a passion for these creatures and it, it sadly it became his downfall there's another Werner Herl film that's worth mentioning as well which I I re-watched the other day and it's called encounters encounters at the end of the world which uh, is, a, is a fascinating documentary that him and his cameraman made uh, in the Antarctic. And it's it's just a stunning film. It's, it's, it's very similar in its scope and its scale and all the extraordinary people that they talk to, uh, very much like The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. But it's, it's such a beautiful film. And I, I saw this one in the cinema as well. And I was, I was completely blown away by it. And he, he basically just enjoys going to these very extreme locations and finding these extraordinary people these odd individuals these scientists and he obviously in encounters at the end of the world obviously he's he's in an arctic research station and he's talking to researchers and all these wonderful scientists about global warming he's talking about the penguin populations he's talking about um the ice he's talking to them about microbiology and the creatures that live under the ice and all the research they're doing but one really fascinating thing is he, he comes across this, uh, this English scientist who's a volcanologist. There's, there's this really fascinating kind of relationship he builds with him. And he actually actually goes off and he's actually made, he made another documentary about this guy, just about volcanoes, which is actually on Netflix at the moment, which uh, I urge you to go have a look as well, uh, which is really fascinating. But What's that one called? Uh, Enter, I think it's like Enter the Inferno, I think it's called. Okay. But, yeah, okay. don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay. But that's, that's, that's a fascinating doc as well, actually. And he... Okay.
0: I, I loved his... The, the only film of his I really, really loved was Lo and Behold, his one
1: on technology. Uh, yeah, that was a fantastic... Uh, was and a fantastic I've, I've watched it three times and I've still no idea what's going on. <laughs> it really right. okay. it takes it from a really
0: bizarre perspective, especially the family who were almost destroyed online when their daughter died. And they weren't allowed to grieve and everybody was accusing them of killing their daughter. It was shocking. Absolutely shocking. So I just quickly want to go through the next two, which I don't think you've seen, Sam. The next one is Behind the Curve, Mm. the 2018 documentary Netflix did about flat earthers, which Mm. is quite interesting in that it looks at the flat earthers. It's quite a gentle film considering how barking mad they are. Mm. You see the people who believe it, yeah. see the people who exploit the people who believe it, mm. and you see the scientists. And there's there's just a couple of things I want to bring out in this. It mm. is well worth it. I mean, it is worth watching for the experiments the flat earthers do to try and prove the earth is flat. And mm. now each one goes disastrously wrong. It's worth watching <laughs> for that. But a couple of things I want to uh, mention on this. One is there's the scientists get together in... I think it's Los Angeles. And they have a discussion about this. And they said, maybe we've failed them. Maybe, you know, there's clearly this drive for knowledge. It's misplaced. But there's a drive for knowledge amongst these people. If that could have been channeled in the right way, just think what that could have done. And I thought that was a really good point that's made. The other thing is that one of the people involved is a woman called Patricia Steer. Now, something happened after this film was made. And I would put Patricia Steer down as one of those people, in my opinion, is somebody who's exploiting. Yeah, And she disappeared completely. She's dropped out of the movement. She wrote a book called Everything That Was Beautiful Became Ugly, Escaping Flat Earth. And it's completely off social media now, whereas before she was all over it. So the, the whole thing is curious. It's quite a gentle little film and they're barking mad yeah. and I imagine that it's people like them that are burning down foam mass at the moment We're more on that in the previous podcast yeah, we did. yeah that's that one I just want to go on the other one that you haven't seen Beware the Slender Man from 2016
1: yeah that, that sounded really interesting when, you, when yeah. you spoke about it the other day the palest man the blackest suit bigger than the tallest brute
2: fear the man
1: the Slenderman, for well, he can do what no one can.
2: Came upon a 12-year-old female, she appears to be stabbed, she appears to be what? Stabbed? Stabbed? Wire and Geyser are accused of stabbing the friend and leaving her for dead. Police say the suspects were inspired by a character on a website. Slenderman, a faceless ghoul. We never thought she could possibly believe that it was real. She told me we had to. She said that he'd kill our families. Who's he? Um, a man. He could be anywhere from six feet to 14 feet tall. He doesn't have a face. His skin is white.
1: She needed to prove that Slender Man existed
2: and would be able to do that by killing somebody. You forget how much it sucks to be a kid. They don't know how to differentiate between fantasy and reality. People are captivated by Slender That's what I call power. To believe in the boogeyman isn't that hard. And they believe it was real? She lifts up her jacket, shows me the handle of a knife. What were you thinking? Dear God, this is really happening. <laughs>
0: So The Slender Man was a character that was created for the internet in the competition between 2006 and 2008. People have become obsessed with this character and creating pictures about him. And then these two 12-year-old girls, guided by their devotion to this mythical character, lure a friend into a woods and then attempt to kill her. They stabbed her 17 times, but thankfully she still lived these two girls Morgan Geezer and Anissa Weir are now going to serve the rest of their lives in prison they are mentally disturbed the whole thing brings to light their backgrounds mm. how on earth this fictitious character mm. could do this um and it, it's an incredible and I thought very sobering documentary uh I know Neil and Graham have never
1: seen it and uh, no would. thank you <laughs> Yeah, it certainly, certainly does sound quite
0: harrowing. Yeah, no, it is very harrowing. So that's my warning to anybody out okay, there. But okay. if you can, it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So I will now pass. We've got two more left, and I'm going to pass back to you, Sam, for the first one, The Act of Killing from 2012, which is a documentary which challenges former Indonesian death squad leaders to reenact their mass killings. Oh,
1: holy cow. Yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah in whichever cinematic genre they wish, including Hollywood crime scenarios and even musical numbers.
1: So yeah. why
0: is this worth anybody's time?
1: Oh, good God. It's an important film for so, so many reasons. I didn't see it in the cinema, sadly. I missed it. I, I kind of kicked myself about it. I managed to catch the the follow-up film, which is The Look of Silence, which is they're, they're, the two of them, they're kind of, it's a diptych. So the, the two films are kind of side-by-side, uh, side, really. And the director, Joshua Oppenheimer, he was sent out there basically to, I think it was basically to do some investigative work around a, I think it was a Belgian, Belgian pharmaceutical company. And I think they had essentially some problems with chemical leaks and essentially they were poisoning the local population. But obviously he was looking at the trouble that people were having about actually voicing their concerns and making sure that the information got out there and there wasn't a cover up. But, the problem that he kind of discovered was the fact that the people who were in, in, in charge of the local government, police, militias, paramilitary groups, they were still the same people who'd been in power since the purge in, I think it was like nineteen ninety sixty five 1965. So they were the same people still in charge, still running the country. And this is where things got interesting, because obviously when he started interviewing all these people, it became very, very clear that no one was really willing to say anything because the people who were still in power had total power still, and they were able to silence anyone and were willing to do so. And the majority of people were, well, were smart enough not to say anything for the interest of their own safety. So Joshua kind of saw a bit of an opportunity here to tell a story about how these guys were still in power. And the horrible thing that he discovered through interviewing them was the fact that they were proud of what they did. And not only were they proud of it, they were boastful. And they were actually bragging about how many communists they killed. The numbers were extraordinary. In in basically, in less than a year, a million people had been killed in this purge. When you put it into perspective like that, that is a hell of a lot of people to die in an extraordinarily short amount of time. So the government at the time used, so it's used it as an excuse to basically kill anyone. So it wasn't just people who were actually communists. They used it to kill anyone and everyone they didn't like. And the purge was pretty horrendous. And the tactics were, yeah, as you can imagine, pretty unpleasant in the extreme. What I decided to do, because I, I hadn't seen the film in such a long time, I decided to sit down and watch the director's cut. Which I, I'd recommend anyone doing it's I mean as, as a warning, I, I wouldn't say it's a film I enjoyed. I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but it's one of those films where you you come out and you feel it, it, may, it makes you feel a little bit more your faith in humanity isn't quite restored, but you you know <laughs> you know you know, you know that, that stories like this need to be told, and if there are people brave enough to tell it, we need to hear it. So many extraordinary stories and important things never get told, they never see the light of day. And so many people obviously get killed before they can ever tell or talk about the truth of these situations. So, what he was doing was really kind of putting his neck on the line and also risking the lives of the human rights lawyers and all the people who were willing to support him to make the film, the locals, because they, they couldn't escape. So when you watch the end credits of the film, loads of the names of loads of the people that supported uh, Joshua to make the film, they're all blanked out. They're all anonymous. So what he decided to do with backing, now this is the thing I absolutely love. Werner Herzog and Aaron Morris both helped to produce the film. And uh, Werner Herzog talks about when Joshua came to London to show him the footage. So they they met very briefly. I think it was only for about an hour in a hotel room. And Werner Herzog sat and watched a few of the clips from the film. And after after a few seconds, uh, Werner has said, "This this is probably the most important film, and this needs to be made." And he's 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 gone on record as saying it's probably the most one of the most important films anyone will ever see in the last twenty years. Not not just documentary, but just important films. The, the whole style of the film is is really peculiar, and it's it's down to the fact that Joshua kind of, he handed over to the perpetrators, and he took a bit of a risk. He took a bit of a punt on this idea, and he didn't know really whether it was going to work or or how it would pan out. He took a risk, and he decided that he'd get the perpetrators, the people who were responsible for torturing, murdering and disemboweling and doing all kinds of really horrendous things to the population to reenact the killings, but dramatize it. So two of the main protagonists in the film, they used to be kind of street hustlers and they used to hang outside, hang around outside the local cinema. So this is obviously before, before communism. And they'd obviously talk about the fact that they used to get loads of American and Western films and they used to try and sort of uh, get money out of people whenever they were coming out of the cinema. And so they obviously had a love of John Wayne and gangster films. <laughs> and it is it is bizarre because they essentially go onto a film set. They choose the costumes, they choose the lighting, the crew, and they start filming and reenacting uh, interrogation scenes but that actually happened. So you're watching the people who murdered all of these thousands and thousands of people reenacting scenes and essentially moments in which they killed people. So the dialogue that the the guys are saying on camera is, is reminiscent of what people were saying when they were pleading for their lives. It's a really, really difficult watch, but an extraordinary thing to witness and there's a, there's a particularly difficult section towards the end where they, they recreate a small village out in the middle of nowhere, and they get together this parliamentary group that's still in power. All of the old guys get together, and they're basically sort of uh, these guys are in this local militia to kind of rally them up. Say, "Kill the communists! We'll try, we'll kill them all!" And they're getting them to sort of revving them up into a real fervor. And they stop filming about halfway through, and they say, "Well, actually, do you know what? I don't, I don't think this is good to have this on film because, I mean." You know, what are people going to think? And it's extraordinary because throughout it, you get these candid moments where the mask slips and these these guys that have perpetrated some really unpleasant things. You do start to empathize with them. But then th- th- there comes a point where you, you, you stop. You stop being able to understand. There are points where they're reenacting the scenes and they have to stop. Because what they're doing is they're, they're resurrecting the past, these, these nightmares that they, they're still haunted by. And they have to stop filming because it's, it's too much for them. And it's, it's just an extraordinary thing to, to watch. And I, I urge anyone to pluck up the courage and watch it because you, you won't regret it. It just goes to the heart of how how are these people, how have they been allowed to, to get away with it? And obviously their arrogance and they're saying, yeah, I'll, I'll happily go to the to the Hague. Um, but they say, well, I mean, what we're doing, it's, it's no different to how any other government behaves with complete immunity. I mean, you know, what's what's wrong with us? And they 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 keep touting the word gangster. And it, it comes from the English meaning free man. And we're just free men and we, we need gangsters. And gangsters are important in our society. And you, it's just bizarre. A bizarre, bizarre thing. You start to see their their whole philosophy and, and why they did it. You do start to see some of them starting to regret what they did bit late now yeah very late now
0: <laughs> it's definitely on my list to watch yeah and it's, oh, it's that, that's,
1: i've put that down now definitely. yeah and it's it's, it's yeah. extraordinary but the one the one to watch afterwards which is the film that accompanies it part of the diptych is called the look of silence now this this one's it's more more of a conventional in its style but it's it's just as important. And essentially what, what Joshua did is he helped one of the locals, uh, this young man called Ebby. His, his brother essentially was murdered during the purge, and he's, a, he's an optician. And what he essentially does with, I mean, with, with some real guts is he decides to go and actually start interviewing and tracking down some of the people that are actually responsible. Being an optician, he actually even conducts interviews while he's doing eye tests. It's a really, really beautiful film, and it's just as shocking, but just as important. And obviously, Joshua talks about this in, you know, obviously when he was at a Berlin Film Festival in interviews, he he talks about the ramifications of the film coming out and the death threats. Obviously, making sure and making precautions uh, to make sure that the the participants in the film are actually safe and they're not jeopardized and putting any uh, putting any unnecessary harm, which is the responsible thing to do. really.
0: And that brings us on to our final documentary of the night. Ken Burns' The Vietnam War, which I think we've all seen. Yeah, every, yeah. Every, So Ken Burns' 10-part, 18-hour documentary, which documents fully the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, just I'll just throw in a little something on this before we start now. A couple of pensioners I speak to are in lockdown, and they're not allowed to... or oh, they're recommended they don't go out at the moment. So I give them a, a TV thing each day to watch. And this is on PBS. And I recommended an episode to them, and they got hooked on the whole series. So it has real power. Burns is an incredible filmmaker, Mm. but I think this document of the Vietnam War is an amazing piece of work. I think the Vietnam
2: War drove a stake right into the heart of America. Unfortunately, we've never moved really far away from that and we never recovered. There was no way we could avoid telling this story. Wars are so extraordinarily revealing, obviously, of the worst of humanity, but as it turns out, also, the best of humanity. There's been a lot done about this subject. Books, documentaries, feature films, novels. I mean, it's not like no one's ever tried. But it remains this kind of unfinished business in American history. So it's time now, the decades have passed, and it's important now to go back and try to understand it. The real
0: heroes are the men that died. To see these kids who had the least to gain, and yet their loyalty to each other, their courage under fire, uh,
2: was just phenomenal. And you would ask yourself, how does America produce young men like this? We wanted to get to know the people. We wanted to get to know the place. We wanted to spend time there. Trying to figure out how to do what we do in Vietnam was really a challenge. There's no one American side. And then within Vietnam, there's the winning side. There's the losing side. They were our enemy and our ally. There's just so many different perspectives. We tried to bring them all together. This is without a doubt the most ambitious project that we have ever undertaken. PBS is the only place it could have been done. I think the country's ready to have the conversation we've never had about the war, which we really need to have. This film is not an answer, but a set of questions about what happened.
0: Sam, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah I th- I, th- I thought it- I thought it was amazing absolutely amazing I was I was really blown away and that's the thing I wasn't I wasn't actually too familiar with his work I mean sub- subsequently I've i tracked down and I've I've tried to see quite a few of his other films but I saw it I, ca- I caught one episode because the BBC showed it a while ago yeah and I had um I had a friend of mine who's uh who's a history lecturer in Nottingham and he he um he gave me a nudge he's like you've got to see this film man he's like you love apocalypse now don't you He's like well, you should watch this man because it all it really, it really goes to the heart of the history and everything. I was like, okay, well, that'd be really fascinating because I, my my ignorance of uh, the history of Vietnam was not complete, but it was I, I didn't know anything about obviously the early days with the French, the kind of yeah imperialistic history of it all, and it was, it's fascinating. And he goes into so much detail, and he talks about how long it went on for. It's extraordinary because his style of filmmaking is strange when, when you start looking at some of his other work he's kind of he's interested in doing one thing in particular and it's it's resurrecting the dead i know i know this sounds really strange but it's 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 what he does with images with photos that i i think's really really fascinating and it's 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 a testament to the the style and the technique that he does he's he's extraordinarily good at resurrecting and revisiting the past and creating these moments and he really does drop you right into the middle of the Tet Offensive you are there with the American soldiers fighting street to street it's just fascinating really it's just fascinating because it 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 goes it goes really to the heart of of why the French failed there and the arrogance of the Americans which it's interesting because they obviously they touch on it, and Kurtz talks about it in Apocalypse. Now he, he talks about you know if if I had ten legions of these of these soldiers, our our problems in Vietnam would be over very very quickly. He just talks about the fact that the soldiers were so determined, and they were on home turf, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail that they carved, where they were essentially taking tons of all this equipment, arms and ammunition. They were zedding their way through impenetrable rainforest yeah to do it and the americans flattened the whole swathes of the entire country they flattened it they poured agent orange this horrendous chemical over whole swathes of the country and they, they still couldn't cut off the coaching trail
0: you know who we have to thank for britain not getting involved in vietnam go on winston churchill mm. And the reason was that they came to him in the mid-50s to say, we're starting to send advisers we like some British ones. And Churchill had gotten so burnt in Korea mm. that he said, not a chance. Mm. To which the Americans turned around and said, right, when, when the Russians are marching down Whitehall, don't turn to us for
1: help. It's fascinating to look at the politics, the ideology and everything that's driving it and the the mentality of the soldiers. And what it does is... In these, this epic kind of chronicling, he goes into so much detail and he goes into, he goes into the lives of the soldiers and you're, and you're with them for these, all of these episodes, all of these hours, you're with them and you slowly unfold the story. And it's the editing, the time and the energy poured into making this doc is just extraordinary. I've taken quite a lot on board from from you know the the, the way that he goes about what he does. He's obviously the, the the documentary I'm making at the moment, where we're doing a blind assembly, which is obviously what he does at the very beginning. There, there are certain things that we've kind of borrowed and pinched and steered along the way. The um, same with uh, with Errol, but it's yeah, it's just extraordinary, and it, it goes it goes really deep into the politics. It also talks about the the mood at home. Uh, it was recently the the anniversary of the uh, the shooting of those students on that college campus, wasn't it? Yeah, Ohio State. University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's that there's that uh, Neil Young wrote that song um, about Probably it. Crosby, Stills,
2: Nash and Young. Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, and it's it's extraordinary because you start to put some flesh on the bone, and you start to hear all these stories. You start to hear the GIs and their their experience and how how they were soldiers. They were ordinary guys sent out there they just became so disenfranchised so angry and when they came home the the anger and the rage they had that that people were saying that this was an unjust war that they'd lost friends and colleagues and so many people they it was just the indignity of it and then you you have this extraordinary situation where they they start to empathize with the protesters and you have this beautiful scene where you have the soldiers chucking their medals they go to washington they launch their medals just in sheer frustration at the the betrayal of their own country.
0: I think you'll all agree that's an incredible list. Mm. Not only some of the best documentaries ever made, Mm. but I think also some of the best documentary filmmakers ever. Mm. Now, every film we've mentioned tonight deserves to be seen, although some, because of this subject matter, should be spaced out in viewing. (laughs) You don't want to be locked down to be more (laughs) depressed. No, no, definitely (laughs) definitely not. Sam, thank you very much for your time and for your insights and good luck with your film. And I look forward to getting together with you in the near future where we can talk a little bit more about the subject matter of what you're filming and when that film is going to come out. And also, we're going to be talking very shortly about a subject very close to my heart, which is film music. And I look forward to that. I'm lining all the elements up for that discussion. Which is your idea, Sam? Great idea, as Trump would say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's it was it was kind of it was kind of spurred on by by Dean, uh, this yeah. this this friend of mine who's a film composer. So he did a he did a little podcast with his his bandmate Kev uh, a while ago, where they were they were just talking about their their favourite film music. And I thought, God, that'd be really great to have a little yeah. a little discussion about that because there are there are so many amazing soundtracks. Uh, Sorry, to
0: definitely will. But Sam, it's been a, a real pleasure. I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Yes, Cheers, yes. guys. Enjoy lockdown. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> to make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, at Flicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.